EU Confidential will get started right after this short message. Today's episode is presented by Google. Hi, this is Karen from Google. Today, people are using artificial intelligence to tackle climate challenges. Through our impact challenge on climate, Google.org commits 10 million euro to fund technology projects for a greener Europe. I'm concerned at the stepping up of a kind of rift between China and the United States. And I think Europe has a real role to play of focusing on a human rights people-led approach or a responsibility-sharing approach. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Rim Mumtaz in Paris, filling in for Andrew Gray this week. And that you just heard at the top of the podcast was Mary Robinson. She's the former president of Ireland, who also served as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And she's now chair of the Elders, an independent group of global leaders working to solve some of the biggest challenges we face. You'll hear her conversation with Politico Sarah Wheaton later in the podcast on everything from the EU's response to the coronavirus, the climate crisis, and where Europe stands in the rift, as she calls it, between the United States and China. We'll also give you a primer on everything you need to know about state elections happening this weekend in Germany's Saxony Anhalt region and why it matters for Germany's big federal elections in September. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, let's welcome our chief Brussels correspondent, David Hirschenhorn. Hey, David. Hey there. So we're doing a fun, different way of panel this week where it's just the two of us. So basically, we're taking our, our online, offline banter onto the podcast. Watch out. God help our listeners. <laughs> um, no, let's start uh, with uh, really two big themes, I think, this week. The first was uh, sort of the return of the US NSA spying scandal on European leaders, where Sunday night, a group of uh, European media outlets revealed that the Danish Secret Service may have um, helped the NSA, the United States NSA, to spy on European leaders, including German Chancellor Angela Merkel. David, what was the reaction in your patch? Well, there was quite a bit of surprise about why this was coming up again. And the nice thing about Brussels is you can even find some plugged-in Danes uh, to ask them what's going on here. And even some of them were perplexed about why, in fact, uh, this old story, we know uh, the NSA has spied on everybody, basically. And it's about spying from 2012 to 2014, really. It's under the Obama administration. That's the time frame we're looking at. That's right. And as you reported, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel said, we've dealt with this. We've talked about this. We expect more from our partners. But actually, we all think they expect exactly this from their partners, but just not for their partners to get caught publicly doing it. And one thing for sure that I noticed was how quickly – Edward Snowden, for example, was tweeting about this, saying uh, that Biden will have uh, some answering to do because, of course, he was the vice president at the time and will soon be making his first trip abroad to the UK and then here to Brussels for uh, first a G7 and then a NATO summit. But uh, very interesting that these old allegations are coming back up. But of course, it has had an important uh, legacy for policymaking and a discussion around privacy. And I think you're right to wonder about the timing, because as we know, in every politically significant issue, you know, timing is important. So do we think that maybe there's a Russia angle here? Uh, you know, Putin and Biden are about to meet after the series of summits that the American president is about to have with his uh, European counterparts. Is that what you're trying to figure out? 
I'm definitely sensing that there are a lot of interested parties who are doing some pre-summit messaging. And that's both around the G7 and around NATO and around uh, the very anticipated Biden-Putin meeting. We saw, for instance, uh, two significant EU foreign ministers from Portugal, which holds the current presidency of the Council of the EU and Slovenia, which will take over the presidency on July 1, suddenly in Moscow, where uh, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, was clearly delivering messages intended to be heard both by NATO leaders and by the Americans. So I do think there's a lot of that going on. And there has been some, as you say, funny messaging sometimes about this. Uh, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, observing about the whole spying incident, you know, NATO as an organization is not involved. And as if you could separate the 30 allies in their component parts from the alliance itself. So we had we ran this interview that I did with the uh, French defense minister Florence Parly, uh, in which you know we were sort of talking about what to expect at this NATO summit that's uh, coming up next week, and it was interesting. The one thing she really did raise as a, a point of real concern was going to be is Jens Stoltenberg's proposal to increase common funding in NATO, and and she said that you know they want us to double our contribution, but they haven't told us what they want to do with this money, and that money could be better spent in increasing our own national capabilities. And of course, it goes back to this age-old conversation, discussion, controversy, whatever you want to call it, uh, between France and NATO and, and how France thinks that actually, you know, the Europeans should be able to do much more within what they call a European pillar for their own security. The Americans obviously want the Europeans to uh, increase their defense spending, but they're a bit wary of the, you know, what lies behind the French enthusiasm and whether that means it's going to lead to kind of a pillar that's going to take away resources, but also is it going to take away political energy away from the alliance? And, you know, I've been following this debate very closely for the past two years. Both sides have not moved an inch. And I really wonder, what does it look like from Brussels where you're standing? Well, first, let's step back for a second to your interview with the French defense minister, which caused quite a stir in Brussels and beyond, because as you said, you were listening carefully and heard a sense that there's a little bit of missing Donald Trump around <laughs> the NATO table. And certainly France in bringing some pressure on NATO on these issues, at times maybe enjoyed his bullying tactics. Uh, and well, j just to explain to our listeners, if they're like, what, what's going on here? When Donald Trump was president, he went about very brutally, basically bullying the Europeans into increasing their defense spending and, and sort of ramping up their effort. And obviously that aligned with this historic traditional position by the French. And now that Biden is president, the French have been worried about their European partners kind of taking their, their hands off, uh, off the wheel and just saying, well, great. It's back to the good old days where we don't have to work about this and the Americans are back and the French keep saying, actually, regardless of who is in the White House, you know, please don't take your, your eyes off the road. Although I'm, I don't think they're succeeding at that. So back to your question. At one point, I'd actually written a primer on NATO spending for Donald Trump because he didn't understand how it works. And very few people understand how it works. And let me do an abridged version of that here for our listeners, because really to understand your question requires knowing a little bit about the complexity of NATO spending. The main way that NATO spending is counted is in the individual expenditures by allies on their own defense. And when 
folks are hammering on 2% of GDP in spending, that's what they're talking about. The complaint that the French have now raised is a proposal by Stoltenberg to increase the central budget of NATO, what goes to headquarters and his salary, which is actually very, very small. It's paid for by formula, divided up among the allies, and everybody pays those bills every year. And there's not been too much controversy about that, except that Trump was complaining so much about how much more the Americans pay that they reworked the formula a little bit for the Americans to pay a bit less, the Europeans, especially the Germans, to pick up a bit more of the share. And separately from that, Stoltenberg proposed increasing that budget a bit more. Just as an example, for France, that amounts to two to 300 million euros in addition to what they're already paying. And now on top of that, adding to the complexity, right, is the question of what individual European allies are spending on their own militaries or on the central budget of NATO versus what they do together as the EU. And there's a lot of talk, and this is uh, partly in a story I wrote about a new report from the Center for American Progress. It's a think tank that has become a training ground in a way for Biden administration officials. And that report was saying the U.S. really needs to abandon what has been decades of opposition to EU defense, integration, and cooperation. So the U.S. likes to push the allies to spend individually and keep that all under NATO where they have obviously much more control as the Americans. But in fact, what these experts were suggesting was that if the EU got its act together and the Germans and the French, the Romanians all started coordinating on military and defense and the EU became a more of a global military power, that actually they would be much more efficient, much more effective, much better prepared as a collective fighting force. And therefore, you know, this would benefit NATO. But the American mantra has always been that anything like that risks being redundant to NATO. What it really risks is taking some control away from the Americans and giving the EU some ability to act on its own. So this debate that's unfolding is happening on many levels. That's just fascinating. And I think it's a lot of people are going to be discussing it over the next week as we go into the series of summits. And I'm sure you and I are going to be back on this podcast talking about it because we will be part of the gang uh, in the UK for the G7 and then in Brussels for NATO and the US-EU summit. As always, David, thank you very much. Great to chat. And you'll find a link to that report in our show notes. Now let's bring in Lawrence Gerke, our reporter in Berlin. Hi, Lawrence. Hi, Reem. I'm so happy you could join us today because we really need to be discussing what's coming up this weekend in German politics. So you've been in the German state of Saxony-Anhalt, which is gearing up for state elections this Sunday. And it's supposed to be an important bellwether test for the CDU, Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats, and its leader, Armin Laschet. First of all, tell us a bit more about Saxony-Anhalt. How would you describe it for our listeners who've never been to Germany? Well, from what I saw on Monday when I traveled there, it's actually a very pretty state. It's uh, very green, beautiful nature, and it has a rich history. But uh, in the 20th century, it was, of course, in the German East, it was very difficult with the communist regime. And you can still tell that 30 years after German reunification, Towns and cities are still struggling. Saxony-Anhalt is the state in Germany 
that experienced the biggest exodus of people following reunification because the economic situation was so difficult. And it has now the largest share of people over 65 years old. And so leading into the elections this Sunday, what do the polls look like? Well, that's uh, the uh, problematic part for Angela Merkel's or Armin Laschet's Christian Democrats, the CDU. Uh, the far-right AFD, the alternative for Germany, is very strong in Saxony-Anhalt. It's strong across the east of Germany, but particularly in Saxony-Anhalt. And in some polls in Germany, they uh, were in recent days were even stronger than the CDU. In our latest one, um, the CDU is at 27%, but the AFD is at 24%. And so, you know, when you were there, you I'm sure you spoke to people. Did you get a sense from your conversations with them uh, whether they're starting to lean more towards the IFD or whether they're going to just actually at the end of the day think actually that's just too far a step to go and they'll still vote for the CDU? What's What's your gut feeling telling you? No, actually, from what I experienced there, it, it looks like um, despite the AFD being more extreme even in the East than it's in the West, a lot of people think that's fine because they're so frustrated with the government, which has been uh, led by the CDU for 16 years now. And especially the migration policies of the mid-2010s, uh, in a way, uh, made people very angry, especially in the East. And um, the AFD sort of exploits this frustration many people in the East are feeling. For example, in Halle, I spoke to a young man who was enjoying a day in the sun with his daughter. And he said, uh, pointing at his daughter, he said, it's about her. I want her to grow up in a safe environment. So I asked him if he didn't feel this was a safe environment. He said, no, uh, he thinks that due to the government's migration policies, you know, the crime rate has gone up. So I didn't get the feeling that this will be a surprise relief win for the for the CDU. Instead, the AFD are actually very successful. And I guess, you know, the reason why we're also talking about this just beyond our political interest in German politics, of course, is because there's a very important uh, election coming up uh, in Germany in September, which is, of course, the federal election, which will lead to the new chancellor after Angela Merkel leaves, you know, bringing her era to, to an end. And usually the CDU candidate in in this case, Armin Lachette would be in pole position to become the next chancellor. But things might not be so clear this time around, right? Indeed. It, it, this is very different from the last uh, few elections. So on the federal level, the main competitor of the conservatives are the Greens now. Uh, so they are a major problem for the CDU. And now this, uh, these days we're focusing on the east of Germany, where the, the party to the right of the conservatives, the far right, is the problem. So Armin Laschet's big problem is, is he sort of has to tend to some voters who would like to go greener. But at the same time, he cannot afford to lose all the more conservative ones. So, so this is this whole problem of for Armin Laschet, where where to go without losing too many voters. Well, we're going to have to keep an eye on that. Uh, and we look forward to reading more of your reporting and having you on uh, the podcast again. Thanks so much, Lawrence. And we'll be sure to update our listeners next week on the outcome of those elections. Thanks for having me. Speak soon. And now stay tuned, because after this short message, we have a fascinating interview with former Irish president Mary Robinson on Europe's response to the coronavirus, climate change, and Europe's role in the rift between the United States and China. Stay with us.
A message from Google. Artificial intelligence is one of the most promising technologies of our time, if deployed responsibly. People are using AI to protect and restore the environment, and Google is at the forefront of these efforts. We are not only on track towards decarbonizing our energy supply, but also minimizing the carbon footprint of machine learning technologies. Beyond energy efficiency, machine learning on AI can actively support climate action too, from defaulting Google Maps to routes with the lowest carbon footprint to working with partners. Through our impact challenge on climate, Google.org committed 10 million euros to fund bold technology projects for a greener Europe. Learn more about the work of the 11 selected organizations in the Planet Progress podcast at g.co slash planetprogress. Earlier this week, our chief policy correspondent, Sarah Wheaton, sat down with Mary Robinson. Robinson was the first woman to become president of Ireland in the 1990s, and she went on to serve as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Now, she's the chair of an independent organization called The Elders. The Elders is a group of leaders who were brought together by Nelson Mandela in 2007 to continue his legacy and to be humble, but to be independent and to bring hope where there is despair, address conflicts quietly behind the scenes, but also speak out on issues. We're preparing for the G7 summit that will take place next week. And, you know, they're going to be talking about developing a global response to the coronavirus pandemic that's at the top of the agenda. But a report uh, that actually um, will come out on the morning that this podcast airs says that people living in G7 countries were 77 times more likely to be offered a vaccine than those living in the world's poorest countries. What do you want to see the G7 leaders do to deal with that situation? I think it is very sad, and I would say shocking, to see the inequitable access to vaccines and other protections. And no one is safe until every country has managed to secure a good COVID policy and implement it. And so uh, the G7 has to take that responsibility. And I think it's really important that the EU stands for its principles of, you know, human rights and um, sharing of responsibilities and uh, really speak out on the equitable access to vaccines. We've heard this line, no one is safe until everyone is safe. But I mean, I don't know. It seems like these mRNA vaccines actually work really well against the variants. And and we have seen in history with HIV drugs, there there has never really been equitable access to those. You know, and now now we're seeing discussion in Europe about vaccinating uh, kids who are at very low risk for serious coronavirus. Well, again, there's there's not excess in poorer countries. Do we have an argument other than a moral one? and, And is that argument ever effective? Oh, I think we have a very real argument. First of all, look at the way that the um, Indian variant, I'm not quite sure um, between Alpha and Delta, or the new terminal, let's call it the Indian variant, is potentially going to slow reopening in the UK, which has a good leadership on vaccines at the moment. Um, but it really is in nation's economic self-interest to pursue vaccine equity because failure to vaccinate in developing countries risks costing the global economy 9.2 trillion in GDP. And the UK's economy could contract by 5% and the EU as the whole by 6%. It is very welcome that the EU Commission 
has provided 1 billion euros to COVAX. But we need to do much more. We need to be a voice also. This mustn't become a kind of geopolitical fight in some way between China and the US. That's why the G7 uh, really has to step up on making sure that there is a real commitment. And the elders, as, as you probably know, support the South Africa and India proposal for some relaxing of the TRIPS agreement in order to provide access to the uh, generically um, access to vaccines. Right. And the TRIPS waiver is this idea that we can waive certain intellectual property protections in, in the case of a, of, a health, yes. of a health pandemic, which we are quite evidently in right now. Um, but there is some argument that changing IP rules uh, wouldn't necessarily deal with the problem in the, in the short or medium term. So what would you like to see EU countries do now to improve vaccine equity? It's extraordinarily important um, that we do see a TRIPS waiver because um, this will counter the notion of a kind of vaccine nationalism, uh, which is part of the problem. And uh, the waiver needs to be complemented by governments and indeed pharmaceutical companies focusing on technology transfer and voluntary licensing for developing countries to ensure you know, scalable rapid production and reliable quality assurance processes and combat vaccine hesitancy also. With regard to the patent waiver issue, we did see U.S. President Joe Biden come out in favor of granting this waiver, but we've seen more resistance from the European Union. What do you, what do you think is going on there? I think the pharmaceutical industry um, is strong and uh, has been very vocal on this issue. Uh, the elders support the waiver, as you know, and uh, we welcomed President Biden's statement on that. You know, it's, it, it's a combination that will help. It's not just the waiver itself. It's also all the other things that have to happen. They're making it realistic to have major manufacturing in developing countries. And, you know, this isn't going to be the only pandemic. That's something we realized. We have to cater for the fact that in the future, we all have to be more prepared. And the inequitable access is a complete learning curve for us. We cannot have this in the future. Mm -hmm. And how would you say that the U.S. return to the world stage is going, you know, Looking specifically at how, that we, as we just said, he's come out in favor of vaccine patent waivers, but the U.S. is against a new pandemic treaty. What do you make of, of this situation? Well, the Biden administration is, I think, doing well, both on the COVID issue, on vaccines in the United States and rolling it out. Um, there is that uncertainty about where the Republicans are, frankly. Uh, that's the real worry. And I, I think it's difficult to see the United States as being really back until we see a Republican Party also committed to policies that uh, move forward, not believing the false Trump you know, denial of the election, etc. I mean, that, that's the worrying part. Oh, yeah. And as, as you know, the United States is not very united right now. And during the Trump era, there was a lot of talk about the EU taking over the mantle of global leader. Do you still want to see Paris, Berlin and Brussels be more assertive? Or should the focus be on rebuilding ties with Washington? I'm concerned um, at the uh, stepping up of a kind of rift between China and the United States. The elders are concerned about that. And I think Europe has a real role to play, a role of focusing on 
a human rights people-led approach or a responsibility-sharing approach. And so I think the EU has to step up more to prevent that kind of divide um, and that kind of divide entering areas like vaccine nationalism, etc., um, precisely uh, because uh, we, we, we need uh, to remember you know, the sustainable development goals, um, leaving no one behind. On some issues, if we can come on to climate, if you like, um, I, I'm quite encouraged. Um, I'm encouraged by the fact that the International Energy Agency aligned its new report with the 1.5 degrees and said, you know, we can get to zero emissions, net emissions by 2050 and stay at 1.5 degrees. That was a very conservative, kind of dominated by the fossil fuel industry um, organization until recently. We've also seen the G7 of environment ministers aligned with 1.5 degrees. We've seen court cases, you know, the German case, the French case um, against their countries, but also the, the recent Dutch case against Shell. And we've seen shareholder action backed by big investors. And then we saw the recent climate bill of France, uh, which addresses also eating less meat in France. That, I think, has startled other European countries in a good direction. Right. And I, I actually was going to say, I, I in your podcast series with the elders that you're doing with, with Finding Humanity, I remember in the January episode, you said that you were actually more hopeful about the prospects for the planet than you were, were pre-pandemic. Uh, and it sounds like now in June, you're still feeling, feeling that optimism. I am more hopeful because I think we're really understanding that we have a huge challenge, but the investors are moving. Um, the uh, oil companies are taken out of their comfort zone. Um, I took part in a, the second convening of oil leaders and oil and gas investors in the Vatican a couple of years ago, and I was really depressed because they did not seem to be seeing the same future at all. Now I think they've got the message. What do you think the tipping point was? You talked about a change, especially in the industry. What do you think the tipping point was? I think it's been a gradual uh, awareness in the investment top business world that actually we needed to change. And there is a move also among business leaders to move away from the rampant capitalism that we have seen that has you know, brought about the inequalities in our world to more, less of a shareholder approach, more of a stakeholder approach that includes workers and their communities as part of that stakeholder. And I mean, did, did it, you said they're using less of a corporate approach, more of a justice-oriented approach. Did they just decide to be nicer? What happened? Um, I think it's just a, a, a realization that we're not going to have a secure world when we have such inequalities in our world. And that actually has been aggravated by COVID, particularly for women and girls. COVID has been a real setback for the women's movement. Uh, just in the year when we're marking uh, the generation equality, uh, we're actually seeing real setbacks, even though we recognize that some of the essential jobs uh, relating to COVID are jobs held pre predominantly by women. Who will be the most important woman leader in Europe when Angela Merkel steps down? <laughs> That's an interesting question. <laughs> Uh, well, we have a number of prime ministers um, in, um, let me think, in Norway, in Finland, in Iceland, um, in Denmark. I'm, I'm getting. Uh, well, what does it what does it say that that there's no there's you know, no Ursula, Ursula, van, Ursula van der Leyen in her capacity as chair of the um, Commission 
is probably going to be the most important voice. And and were you following this whole SofaGate situation? Yes, I I was, and uh, I actually admired that Ursula von der Leyen um, made it part of her public speech to the Parliament. Women have to speak out about their pain and humiliation when discriminated against in that way. All too often in the past, women like me, you know, just took it as being that's the way things are, and we didn't speak out enough. Um, it is really important for women to make the kind of statements publicly that she made in her capacity. And it will mean that it's less likely in the future. Indeed, indeed. And if you'll indulge, indulge me just in a quick lightning round. Um, first, have you invited Barack Obama to join the elders? We've discussed it with him. If you had to pick, would you rather speak at the UN General Assembly or at Davos? Oh, definitely the UN General Assembly. All right. And if only one of you could speak at the UN General Assembly, should it be the elders or Fridays for the Future, the youth climate movement founded by Greta Thunberg? I would have to cede that it probably should be the young climate activists, because I was there when Greta addressed the General Assembly. And I had tears in my eyes as a grandmother, because she was the age of my eldest grandchild. And uh, it was very effective. I doubt if the elders could have the same emotional impact as she had. Will you live to see a united Ireland, and do you want to? I want to see an Ireland um, united in real relationships, and I think that will take time. Um, I don't know whether I will, but I'm uh, worried that there's a counter uh, inevitably happening at the moment, and uh, I, I, I worry about that. We ask all of our guests if you have a book, a TV show, or a podcast, something that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. It doesn't have to be work-related. I would recommend my podcast uh, that I do uh, with two people, with Maeve Higgins and Tamali Kodakari from uh, Sri Lanka. Maeve is a comedian, and we began by doing it together. She's half respectful of me. We give voice, give place and recognition to women in the South of the United States, and in particular, in the global South. And we hear wonderful stories of how they build, uh, you know, resilience in their communities, what they're doing to counter a problem they're not responsible for largely. And it's also very funny. And uh, I have, you know, a great sense that if you can be humorous about a serious problem, you are going to get through to an audience much more quickly. Great. Well, that's that's a great note to end on. But if you have any other points that you would like to make. Well, I am, as I said, uh, more hopeful, but I really want the voices that really matter to come to the conference on climate in Glasgow in November. And if we don't get the vaccine equity right, uh, there is a danger that those voices won't be able to come. And then we won't have that sense of urgency that we had in Paris. We need that urgency if we're going to get the decisions in Glasgow that we need to get um, about every country fulfilling their commitments through their nationally determined contributions and corporations and cities doing likewise. So everything hinges together and the COVID vaccine issue is central. That's a very interesting point, tying those two things together. Mary Robinson, thank you so much for your time and for speaking with us today. Okay, thank you, Sarah. Thanks to Sarah for bringing us that interview with Mary Robinson, and we'll be sure to include a link to her podcast that she recommended, Mothers of Invention, in our show notes. 
And that's our show for this week. Be sure to follow the podcast or subscribe for free so you get every episode as soon as it's published. And while you're at it, be sure to leave us a rating and review, preferably a nice one. Thanks to a few of our listeners from the United States for the recent positive reviews, and they particularly seem to enjoy Andrew's Scottish accent. So don't worry, he'll be back next week. In the meantime, I'm Rim Mumtaz in Paris. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>